there is a lot of uh, sickness and stuff going around, and I know a lot of folks are at home today because of that, so I'm glad you're here. Maybe you're getting over sickness, and, and I hope you're feeling better. Um, we're going to be in Romans uh, chapter 9 this morning, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, last week, we finished up our teaching time in Romans chapter 8, and uh, just happened to look back, and we realized that we spent exactly uh, 10 weeks with 10 different messages in Romans 8. And so I can't recommend enough to you um, the, the reading of Scripture, the, the, the study of Scripture, but Romans 8, man, Romans 8 is just so rich, so full. And, and we, could, we could literally, we could do a whole sermon series, a whole Bible study series just in Romans 8. But uh, today we are going to move into chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 1. And as we move there, the, the tone and the content of Paul's writing is very different than what we experienced in, in Romans 8. So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know what we've been talking about is these incredible promises, this incredible encouragement, this incredible joy and security and identity that we have in Christ. And we come to chapter 9, and all those things are still true, but the tone carries just a great sorrow. It's very heavy. It's, it's, it's burdensome in a lot of ways, especially when you compare it to what we're coming off of in chapter 8. As a matter of fact, as I was uh, preparing and, and reading this week for this message, I came across several different authors, pastors, commentators that basically admitted that Romans 9 is a, is a challenging text. Um, and it's one of those that when you compare it to the chapter before at Romans 8, there's not a ton of uh, resources compared, comparatively to Romans 8 where it's just infinite amounts. At Romans 9 is one of those, if, if you're not preaching through the Bible, in other words, if you're not going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, you'd probably choose uh, to skip Romans chapter 9 because it's kind of like, it's, it's a little bit difficult to teach. It's got some things that are, are hard to understand. And I would just tell you that, um, A, you know we don't do that. We're not going to skip anything if we're in a series. But second of all, that um, in, in chapter 9, I believe, just like I do with the rest of Scripture, and I know you guys do as well, is it's there for a reason, right? And so we don't, we don't read the, the chapter 8 and say, okay, well, nine's really difficult. Let's go to 10 or 11 or 12 or whatever. So in our pursuit of Scripture, we want to take in all of Scripture uh, because every chapter, every verse is laid out in, uh, is, is, is there for a reason. And so this morning, I think what you'll see when it's all said and done with, with chapter 9 is a couple things, that the verses in chapter 9 actually will go to reinforce what we've seen in chapter 8, but from a very different perspective. And it's going to be interesting as we go through this. And so three things that you'll probably see, and I hope that you see as we go through this, is a couple of things. God's powerful promises, His supreme sovereignty, and His magnificent mercy. Now having said those things, let me go ahead and warn you ahead of time that this scripture does not come today without some controversy, some disagreement, especially among Christians, which is why a lot of times pastors skip this chapter. Um, and some of you already know what I'm talking about because you've been reading ahead. You know where we're at in Romans, which, by the way, that's awesome. Keep reading ahead. I think there's nothing better you can do than read the text that we're coming up to so that you're already familiar to, with it by the time we get here on Sunday. 
But let me just be clear, my, my whole purpose here this morning is not to share with you my opinion on this text. Uh, I can do that after the service if you want me to. Um, my objective is to share with you what I believe the Bible is, is teaching, and I'm trying not my very best not to flavor that with my personal thoughts, my personal perspective. And I'll do my very best to keep it out. It's, it's obviously hard to do that. But my number one goal with, with this text and any text is to, to teach the Scripture as accurately as possible. And that includes a couple of things we've been talking about. And I know one of the things we've been talking about a lot on Sunday nights with how to read the Bible with for all it's worth is, number one, we're going to look at the context of the verses. When you're reading Scripture, we've we got to start with context. Number two, we're going to look at the interpretation biblically of those verses. And then third and last, and those really should go in order, is the various applications practically that we can apply to those verses. And the applications may be a little bit different, but we really should have only one context and really only one interpretation. And then from there, we can practically apply it out in many, many different ways. That's all far easier said than done. So I I say what I'm attempting to do, I might clearly fail at that. I just wanted to be clear that I don't, um, not trying to start a theological debate with anybody or or, uh, you know, present one, one point of view and not the other. I'm just trying to stick as close to the word as, as possible. Um, so as we get into this, I just want to uh, look at a couple things. And first of all, I want to I show you, let's just start in the text. I think that's the best, the best way to start. And as we get there, I think um, I'm going to try to cover a lot of verses. I'm not going to spend as much time on one singular verse as I typically would, uh, because it's all one general kind of thought. Um, and so I want you to see that as, as we go. And there's a couple different segments here, but I'm going to read it all as one, and then we're going to kind of come back and, and, and break it down from there, all right? So starting in Romans 9, uh, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read to verse 18, and then we're going to break, break down from there. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, 
not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my, my, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If you read the, the sermon title today on the screen I had earlier, I'll bring it back up for you, called the, today's sermon, The Beauty of Election. And before we break down this text, I, I want you to know that this message has nothing to do with government elections or voting or politics or anything of that nature. Uh, matter of fact, of all the things I probably dislike, politics is easily probably my top three, uh, especially just the, the climate of our politics and, and the nature of our nation in the last 15, 20 years. But if politics is your thing, knock yourself out. That's awesome. Um, but it's not, it's not my thing, and I hope I'm not offending you, but I just I don't want to get your hopes up based on, you see, the beauty of election. We're not talking about those kind of elections. There are a lot of churches that uh, love politics, love to discuss them from the pulpit. I assure you that's not going to happen here. Um, the sermon is titled, the beauty of election, and it's specifically in reference to God's election, as you will see us break down in the text. And so, as I mentioned earlier, and you can tell that I love alliteration, it helps me to remember things. Uh, so we're going to look at three things, God's powerful promises, God's supreme sovereignty, and God's magnificent mercy. And so starting with number one, God's powerful promises, I want to look at the first five verses, and specifically the first three verses out of those five. And this is Paul speaking to the believers in Rome. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So we've got to understand a couple things. This is kind of a weird way to start a chapter, or a weird way to approach it. Immediately, Paul is starting out on the defensive. He's starting out by defending, like, look, guys, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience is clear before the Lord. I am really grieved. I am really in anguish here. I don't want you to think I'm putting on a fake emotion for you. That's what he's saying. And the reason he's having to say that is there's a large majority, at that time, a large majority of believers in Rome that were had some kind of iffy feelings about Paul because what had Paul done? He had said that salvation is not just for Israel. It's not just for the Jewish, but it's for also the Gentiles. And so that kind of made the the Israelites, the Jewish, the line kind of like, Paul, I I don't know. They kind of, uh, some people might have even thought of him as a, a traitor to the Jewish nation because of his love and his ministry to the Gentiles and his teaching about the freedom we have in Christ. And so what Paul is doing right from the outset here is specifically to those who 
who doubted him and his concern for the Jews is he's saying, guys, look, I love you. Just because I've ministered to the Gentiles, I love you. My concern is for you, and my desire is for you and your welfare. And you've got to know that Paul is writing to many of which would be his, his own family, his, his friends or extended family. And he's saying, guys, I'm not putting on fake emotion. And that's why he uses those words, great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. That's what he says. And why does he have that? Because he says they are accursed or cut off from Christ. And what that means is they are on their way to spending eternity in hell apart from the presence of Jesus. You can read a lot of different um, study notes about that word accursed, but basically it's like the worst thing you can imagine. It's, it's eternal separation. It is cut off, exactly what he says, from Christ. And to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of background, and a lot of you know this, but keep this in mind, that Israel as a nation, just in general, this is not all of Israel, but as a nation had had kind of missed the meaning of the law. They had missed the meaning of Christ. A lot of them largely understood that what I've got up here on the screen, that their obedience to the law to carry it out exactly was how they would obtain righteousness through the law. So God gives the law, we follow the law, and God will judge us based on how closely we follow the law. And so there's, there's really a misinterpretation there of, of Christ and of the law. And so... That, that, and that really leads to where Paul finds himself when he says, there are those that are cut off from Christ. They've misunderstood why Christ came. And so they actually, many of them, rejected Christ as the Messiah. And they actually said, you know, no, it's not through Jesus that I can receive salvation. It's through me and my ability to keep the law. Uh, Galatians, Paul referenced this in, in Galatians chapter 3, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He's talking about going to the cross. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Well, we know that's how Christ died. And so Christ, with his death, redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law being that you and I know if I give you 10 rules, or let's just use the 10 commandments, and I ask everybody in this room who in your life has kept all 10 of those your whole life, nobody's raising their hand, right? I mean, most of us can't even raise our hand that I've kept those this week or, or the last two days. So that's the curse. The law comes, and the law condemns us is what the law does. The law says, here's the standard, and oh, by the way, here's where you fall. You can't keep that. You're not going to be perfect. But Jesus said, let me come to redeem that. Let me come to take on your curse. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus died by being hung on a tree. So in contrast to the way the Jews had felt about Jesus, the Gentiles were kind of the opposite. They chose. They realized, I can't follow the law. I'm going to fail. And and therefore, I want to accept Jesus as the Messiah, accept his sacrifice, which in, in turn paid the penalty for their sin, and allowed them to obtain righteousness through the blood of Jesus, not because they're great law abiders, not because they're great obedience to the law. They realized they're not going to be able to do that. And so they had to have somebody or something to step in and redeem them. And we know that Christ specifically 
provided that redemption. He is the only means to provide that redemption and that salvation. But what Paul says here in verse 3, and this is powerful words. I mean, I'm not sure there's more powerful words spoken by Paul anywhere else in Scripture. He says that I wish that I myself would be cut off from Christ. So he's standing, if you could, if you could imagine this, he's standing looking out at eternity. And, and let me just be really clear. Eternity is either heaven or it's hell. There's not an in-between. There's not a, like a waiting period. There's not a waiting room. You die, you're present in heaven, you're present in hell. One of the two. And, and Paul is saying, I'm looking at both of those. And he said, you know what? I would rather be cut off from Jesus in heaven. And I'd rather be damned to hell, is what he's saying, than to be with Christ forever. If it would mean what? If it would mean what? If these would believe. If they would be brought near to him to enter his kingdom. I mean, that's a, that's a selfless love. I, I wonder about me and you when it comes to this verse. Have we ever had that deep anguish in our soul for somebody else? Somebody else's salvation. Maybe for your own salvation you've had that. Maybe, maybe for somebody like super close to you. But outside of one or two people, have we ever had that kind of grief in our soul that, you know what, I would rather, I would rather be cut off from Christ just so they could be brought near to the throne, to be brought near to Jesus. That is a grief that I don't think we know. That's, a, that's, a, that's being able to grieve to the point of, as he says, anguish and sorrow over these people. But guess what? Paul, even as great as he is, even he could not do anything that would result in their salvation. And that's why he says, I wish that I could, because he knew that he couldn't, right? And this is based on the promises in chapter 8. Remember what we talked about in chapter 8? It says over and over again that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. And guess what? Nothing also includes your decisions and my decisions. So Paul, even, Paul was saying, even if I wanted to, I wish that I could, that if I would make this choice that I'll go to hell and they'll go to heaven, that I would make that choice. He said, but guess what? I can't make that choice. He said, because nothing, even my own decisions, cannot separate me from the love of Christ Jesus that I have in my Lord. He's saying, if I could, this is what I would do. But we know that's an impossibility based on what we've studied the last few weeks in chapter 8. He continues by showing these powerful promises in those next two verses, verses 4 and 5. And these promises are, are what God's given to Israel. And these are, these are incredible. Look at these next two verses here. <clears throat> Excuse me. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God overall, blessed forever. Amen. Paul is basically acknowledging that of, out of all the people on the earth, if there was ever a people group, ever a nation that should have been believers in Jesus, it should have been them. It should have been Israel. You can see these verses lay out so many promises and privileges. And if you just go through and you write in your Bible, you highlight, here's just kind of a summary of what I just read. This is crazy. 
This is an amazing amount of privilege, amazing amount of promises that are given to the people of Israel. Adoption from God, freedom from slavery. They were the ones that experienced the miracles. They were the ones entrusted with God's law. They were the ones entrusted with the temple. They were the ones that were communicated to from the prophets of God. And by the way, the prophets themselves, they were even Jewish. They got the prophets. They got the temple. They got the law. And to top it all off, better than anything, when the Messiah does come into the world, he comes into the world and he's born what? As a Jew. And where does he live? In Israel. I mean, it's like, I'm giving you, this is, this is my people, and I'm giving you all this. This is incredible, powerful promises and privileges. And when you combine all of that with what we see in verse 8, or, or chapter 8 last week, it's really easy to see that there's a multitude of promises given out to the people of Israel. But here's the problem, and this is what Paul is saying, is that even though Israel had been given those promises, Paul says that many of them were still, what, cut off from Christ. He's saying, I wish that I could cut myself off to bring you near. That tells me that there's a lot of people that are already cut off from Christ. Despite that list, they did not believe. So that leads us to a couple of really questions that we've got to struggle with. And I didn't come up with these questions. I read this uh, from a, a book or maybe it was another sermon. But it, I, it, I kind of changed the questions a little bit. But two really questions we've got to wrestle with. Number one, if there are Israelites, Jewish people that are cut off from the promises that God gave, then we've got to ask the question, did God fail to keep his promises to Israel? And number two, if God did fail them, how can we be sure he's not going to fail us too? I want you all to think about those two questions for a second. Did, did God fail to keep his promise to Israel? Because obviously Paul's addressing people that are cut off from Christ, that are from Israel. Okay, they're Jewish. And if he did, and if you determine that he did, then if he could lie to them, could he lie to us? Let me dive into the answers to these questions in the second segment of this text. And this is where we look at the supreme sovereignty of God. And I want you to look, as Paul explains in verses 6 through 13, that it's actually not God who failed to keep his promises. Rather, it was Israel who had failed. Why did they fail? Because they had rejected Jesus. They're the ones that crucified Jesus. Yes, it might have been Roman soldiers that carried through the physical, like putting Jesus on the cross, but we know it was actually who? It was the Jews who cried out, crucify him. It was the Jews who went to Pilate and went to the Roman government saying, we want this guy dead. Release the murderers, release the thieves, and put that guy on the cross. It was the Jews who rejected Jesus to the point of crucifixion. And in verse 6, Paul explains very simply that not all people that are of Jewish ethnicity or Jewish heritage are necessarily part of what he says the true Israel, which are those who embraced Abraham's faith in God. I love, I love John Piper's summary here. He says, not all physical Israel, that means born of Israel, is true Israel. In other words, the word of God has not failed because the promises were not made to all ethnic Israel in such a way that secured the salvation of every individual Israelite. So y'all see what's going on there? So those promises are not based on a heritage. You were born in this family, so therefore you're saved. You were born in this part of the 
the world, so therefore you are saved. That's not what this is about. It's not a Jewish ethnicity or a Jewish heritage or a Jewish race. J.D. Greer sums it up even better, I think, maybe even more succinctly. He said the covenant God had with Israel was never about ethnic identity. It was about personal trust in his promises. So when we talk about Israel and we talk about Jewish people, they're very different things. We talk about Jewish heritage and Jewish lineage and, and Jewish culture, or we talk about people that believe, Jewish people that believe like Abraham and had faith in God. Very different things. The covenant God made with Israel was not about their ethnicity, was not about their, you know, their, their heritage or background. It was about their trust, personal trust in his promises. And then in this text, Paul uses two examples to show God's supreme sovereignty in this covenant. And by the word, that's, that word sovereignty, it, it's just a real fancy word. It just means ultimate power, ultimate authority. Sovereign, like if you think of a sovereign king, he is like the dictator, right? He is overall and be all. That is what we talk about when we talk about God's sovereignty. So, so really two examples here, and it's really a, a set of sons. And, and you can see this broken down in, in this text that I just read. So you've got one, the first example, starting in verse 9, if you look there, Paul talks about Abraham's two sons, right? Y'all are familiar with Isaac and Ishmael. Now, both these sons were born to Abraham. We know that. We know Isaac was born from Sarah, uh, and he was the son who would embrace the promises of God. His faith would be in God. Ishmael was born from Hagar, who was the other son of Abraham, and we know that, it, that Ishmael rejected the promises of God. So if we look just at those two, those two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, that we see that though they're both born of Abraham, so they're both in the, the heritage, they're in the ethnicity, they're born in the right place, so to speak, or born in the right family, so to speak, that one, Isaac, chooses to embrace his faith in God. The other one chose not to. And so when you see that, one of them, Isaac, represents those who embrace the promises of God. That's the, that's the covenant. And the other one represents those, regardless of ethnicity, who rejected the promises of God. So when you think about these two sons in the context of their culture, it really should have been Ishmael, right? Ishmael should have been the chosen one. He was the firstborn. But we know it wasn't Ishmael. It was actually Isaac was the chosen one. And it was Isaac that God would continue building the line of Israel and building his line to Jesus through Isaac, right? Ishmael is cut off. And we know even today that the, those two lines are still today in 2020. They're at war with each other. That's what's going on across the Middle East and all over the world. It, it goes back to this differentiation. They're both born in the same family. There's choices to be made. It's not about where you're born. It's not about who you're born to is what Paul is saying. It's not about a physical thing. The second example Paul gives is from Isaac's own family. You start in verse 10. Look at what it says. It mentions that Isaac and Rebekah conceived two sons. We know their, their names are Jacob and Esau. Esau, firstborn son. He should have been the chosen one, right? That's the way it was in that culture. If you were the firstborn, you had rights to all things. And, and we're somewhat familiar with that in, in our culture, but not to the extent they had in their culture that the firstborn was, is, was the one that everything would be left to. But we know that it wasn't Esau, right? It was Jacob that was chosen by God to continue the line 
of his father, Isaac, his grandfather, Abraham, before him. And in verses 11 and 12, you see this, this sovereignty, the supreme sovereignty that, that, of God that Paul's talking about. Look at 11 and 12. I want to read these to you. This is what he's talking about. He says, though they, talking about Jacob, Esau, they were not yet born, and they had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, they hadn't even been born yet, but because of him who calls. She was told, Rebecca was told, the older Esau will serve younger. Jacob. Jacob, even though he was the younger son, and by all accounts, you read about Jacob, and this is one of the things, when I read the Bible, and I'm reading the, the, the account of Jacob, it's one thing that fires me up. Because Jacob is like, he's, he's just not a good character. I mean, some of the things he does is just straight out lying, deceitful. I mean, the dude just, I mean, he has major character flaws. And every time I read this about Jacob and Esau, I kind of find myself like, kind of like Esau, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, what well, it didn't make sense, and I, I kind of find myself reasoning, but it, it's, again, goes back to what it says, before they were born, they had done nothing good or bad, why? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of their works. So Jacob, even though he was the younger son, and by all accounts, definitely not a fantastic human being, he still managed to embrace God's promises, now, in contrast, Esau, he's the firstborn son. What do we know he did? He traded his birthrights for a meal, right, for basically a, a bowl of soup. That's why maybe I relate to Esau. I'm like, man, that's a good deal. Like, I'm going to get something to eat. Here your birthrights. Just get something to eat. But, but really, Esau represents those that were born of Jewish descent, yet inwardly he traded his obedience to God for an indulgence in the sins of the flesh. And it's not just at the birthright. There's other examples too. We have to go back and, and read more into that. But, but just from a, from a very top level down bird's eye view of this. So through both Ishmael and through Isaac and then also you take Esau and then Jacob. Paul's point's very clear. That God didn't base his decision or his election on their physical attributes. They were both born in the same family. And with, with, with Jacob and Esau, they had the same mom and dad. I mean, Ishmael and, Isaac, I mean, Ishmael and um, Isaac, they obviously had a different mom, same dad. But in, in Jacob and Esau, they had the same mom and dad. So what, what Paul is saying is God did not fail to keep his promises to Israel because Israel was not referring to a nation or an ethnicity or a heritage of Israel. These guys were born in the same family. God kept his covenant with one side and not with another because of their choices. So this text points to the fact that God alone is supremely sovereign. And let me just tell you, if you're a believer in Christ, you should find great comfort in his sovereignty because even when it doesn't make sense to our, let me just tell you, very limited logical thought processes, that his sovereignty is still true and still reigns. Um, I read a quote this week. It's awesome. It's from Warren Wearsby kind of an old-school commentator. I think Warren Wiersbe uh, passed away last, last year, I believe. But anyway, he said this. He said, God chose Jacob before the babies were born. The two boys had done neither good nor evil, so God's choice was not based on their character or conduct. 
Since God's selection of Israel does not depend on human merit, their disobedience cannot nullify the elective purposes of God. God is faithful even though his people are unfaithful. So in other words, we should find great comfort in the fact that because we can do nothing to earn our salvation, what's also true is we can do nothing to lose our salvation. Because what this is saying, what Paul is saying is salvation is based on God's character and God's faithfulness and God's integrity, not yours and not mine. Aren't you glad of that? Because if, if, if my salvation was based on my integrity and my character and my faithfulness, I, I wouldn't have a salvation, right? Think about you. Would, you. would you deserve salvation based on your own merit? Because if, if so, if you believe that, then at some point you're going to trip and fall, and then suddenly you're not going to deserve salvation anymore. So you would have subsequently, quote-unquote, lost your salvation your salvation is not based on you. I'm so, so happy about that. Your salvation is based on God's faithfulness, not our faithlessness. And as we read what Paul is saying in verses 6 through 13, I know this is what comes across in my mind and it's probably coming across in your mind too, is, is this really fair? How does, how does God choose? How is he choosing Isaac and not Ishmael. And how is he choosing Jacob and not Esau? Paul knew his audience that he was writing to were going to ask the same kind of questions. And so he addresses it. Verse 14. I love the Bible. It always answers itself. It's fantastic. Moving to that third segment, God's magnificent mercy. Look at what he says in Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Looking back on all that I just said, what Paul said, what, what I just said is there injustice on God's part? Is God not being just? That's what he's asking, right? And he answers it, by the way, by no means. It might seem on the surface, and I would agree with you, that God is unfair in how he gives mercy to some and he withholds mercy from others. But Paul lays out a defense here that demonstrates that God is just while at the same time God is merciful. If you think about mercy, and and that's the third point here, the magnificent mercy of God. If you look up the definition of mercy, the very definition means to receive something you do not deserve, right? Think about mercy. To receive something you do not deserve. Receiving something you do deserve is called justice. That's not called mercy. Okay? So think of it like in the simplest of terms. There's a child. They've been disobedient to their parents' rules. And if that child receives the punishment for their disobedience, we would say that is justice. That is right and that is good and just. However, if that child received anything besides that punishment, and was given a, a second chance or a third chance, we would say that is mercy from the parents. Okay? Very different things there. There's justice, and then there's mercy. And, and the bottom line, when we come down to what God is doing in, this, in, in, in the history of, of God's story in the Bible, what he's doing in our lives, is God does not owe anyone mercy. 
anyone mercy. So therefore, because we would say that God does not owe anyone mercy, I think we would all agree, he doesn't owe me mercy, I know that, Um, and he doesn't owe you mercy, so therefore we cannot claim it's unfair for God to not show mercy to all people. See, the the reality is, as we've already studied earlier in Romans, go back to Romans 3, that's months ago, what? We all have sin, and we all have fallen short of the glory of God. So what would be justice is God would be completely justified giving us over to our own sin, to let us die in our own sin, to be eternally left, separated from him, eternally in hell. That's justice. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. That's what all mankind deserves. And if you think about it, it, this this is the part about mercy that's hard to wrap my mind around. If, if, if God acted only on the basis of righteousness based on our works, then he, heaven's empty. If he, if he acted on the basis of righteousness based on our works, there's only one person there. It's Jesus. Thank goodness he does not base it on our works. Nobody would or could ever receive salvation. So I want you to now flip and think about this. The fact that God would show his grace and mercy to one single person is absolutely astonishing and amazing. Much less what the Bible says to anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who turns from their sin, who asks for forgiveness of their sin, and they place their faith and trust in Jesus. See, we have to understand, we have to, I think we approach this from an American mindset that somehow everybody's owed something, and we can see this in our political climate all the time. Well, so-and-so, they, they deserve this, and they deserve this. And they, no, no. We, we don't approach the Bible with, a, with an American mindset. God does not owe you anything. God does not owe me salvation. God does not owe me mercy. Those are gifts. And when you think about it like that, and you think about what justice would be, let's put ourselves in the courtroom of all eternity. And every single time, you're guilty. And I'm guilty. Every time. Every time. If we want justice, we want to cry out for justice, and we want, we want justice, I'd be, I'd be very careful asking for justice. You want justice? Like I said, heaven's empty, and me or you never see it. Complete and perfect justice would be God giving each of us over to our own sin. That is perfect justice. The fact that any one single person can know Jesus, any one of us, if God just chose one of you in this room, just chose one of you, and that was the only one he chose, everybody else, no. He chose one of you to show his mercy to. I mean, that's an incredible gift, incredible, that he would choose one sinful, despicable human being and show that person mercy. And we know that God didn't just show his mercy to one person. Bible says he shows his mercy to hundreds, to thousands, to millions, to infinity. He shows his mercy on many, many levels. So then the question becomes, and this is the most obvious question in this text, is why does God show mercy to some and not to others? Glad we asked that question because Paul answers it. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Thank goodness that word there is not justice. We cry out so much for justice, and I'm telling you that that's the very last thing we want. It's based on God who has mercy. The most important thing we need to understand about mercy is that none of us deserve it, and that it was, and to receive it based on our own merit, our own behavior, our own good choices, it would be impossible. So we have to understand that God's choice to show mercy, it is all out of undeserved grace for one person, much less for two or three or four people. It's all undeserved grace. And then Paul gives us this example. This is what he's talking about. It's the Old Testament. Y'all are probably familiar. There's been, I guess, tons of movies about the Ten Commandments and Pharaoh and Moses and all this stuff. And y'all are probably familiar with it. But, but he, he mentions Pharaoh was raised up by God so that God's power may be displayed and that God's name may be proclaimed in, whole, in the whole earth despite what? Pharaoh's sinfulness and his hard heart. See, what, what's going on here? This is, a, this is a hard thing to wrap your mind around. And this is where it gets kind of confusing. That it's astonishing that God would use even the sin of a man, in this case, Pharaoh's hard heart, to still show his power and to still proclaim his name and to still receive his glory in all the earth. You think back to what Paul's referencing here in the book of Exodus. These, these two men are central to this story, right? There's Pharaoh and Moses. What do we know about those two guys? Well, A, they're both sinners. B, they're both murderers. So why does one get chosen and the other one not to be given mercy? Y'all thought about that? We always think about Moses being like this, you know, just awesome dude. And, and I mean, he is. He's also a murderer. So he's, he's not just a, a, a white lie sinner. He's a, he's a murderer, just like Pharaoh. And yet, here again, what Paul is saying is that it is obvious that God is sovereign and he acts according to his own will. And in this instance, just like before, it wasn't a matter of righteousness of these two men. It was rather a matter of the magnificent mercy of God. You think about this text, and this is, this is where things get a little, little hairy, I guess. One key point in that text in Exodus, if you go back and read that, the Bible mentions that, that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And you say, wait a minute, wait, 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 that can't happen. That is not fair for God to harden Pharaoh's heart. So that's saying that God is dooming Pharaoh to hell on his own. And I would agree, that's hard to read. But if you go back and you read that text in Exodus, before it mentions that God hardened his heart, it also says five different times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then it comes... And number six, the sixth time it mentions his hard heart, it says God hardened his heart. So if we're going to blame somebody, who are we going to blame here? So it's really not God that we're blaming for Pharaoh's hard heart. heart. It's Pharaoh because it said five different times in this whole grand scheme of going back and forth with Moses and Aaron that he hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. So here's the example of something I can't understand. And if I say stayed here with you until... Eternity, I would still never be able to explain this to you. But here's the perfect example, and this is why Paul uses it, where both the free will of man 
exist in Scripture right alongside the sovereignty and the election and the predestination of God. How do both of those exist alongside each other? There's books written. There's doctorates made. There's people that are still trying to figure that out. I don't know. I can tell you I don't know how both of those exist together, but they do. Throughout the Bible, these two ideas run right alongside each other, and they're kind of interwoven in this beautiful symphony that only God himself could compose. And, and for me, this is one reason why I, personally, I don't get caught up in a lot of the theological debates, uh, you know, whether, are you a Calvinist? Or are you not? Are you non-Calvinist? You're Armenian. And yes, I have a way that I lean, and you probably can guess which way I lean. But it really doesn't matter which way you lean or which way I lean. If you're, oh, I'm full-blown, I'm Calvinist, that's me, great. I'm full-blown, free will, okay, that's great. Or I'm full-blown, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's probably most of you, okay? And if, that, if that's most of you, that's fine. Because the bottom line is you see both in Scripture. And you can lean one way or you can lean the other way. You might be in the middle. But I can tell you that free will, I see so many verses that say, whosoever believes, whoever calls out, whoever makes the choice, whoever, 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 those exist in Scripture, right? Nobody would argue that. But then we'd also see, like we see in this text, that God's predetermined predestination and election and salvation also exist. And these two things exist together in the same pages of the same Bible. How does that make sense? I have no idea. That's why I leave it to someone smarter than me to sum it up. I'll go with my brother Warren Wearsby. This is what he said. He said, God is holy and he must punish sin. We'd all agree with that. But God is loving, and he desires to save sinners. We would all agree with that. If everybody is saved, it would deny his holiness. But if everybody is lost, it would deny his love. The solution to the problem is God's sovereign election. And I love this, this quote. He said, a seminary professor once said to me, Try to explain election, and you may lose your mind. But try to explain it away, and you will lose your soul. There's a lot of truth in that. If I had to sum up what Paul is saying in a very simple way, I would say that quote does it very, very well. You try to explain election, like I've done this morning, you're probably going to lose your mind. I've lost my mind all week trying to make, make sense of this. But you try to explain it away, and you very well could lose your soul. I'm going to give you one final illustration, and then we're going to close. And this is not an illustration I came up with. I, I stole this. This is, uh, came from a Presbyterian minister. Uh, his name's D. James Kennedy. And here's, here's where I want to close. And maybe this will make sense to you. Maybe it won't. But here's where I'm going to leave you either way. So let's pretend that um, I know five people, okay? I, that are planning to go hold up a bank. They're going to go rob a bank. And they're all friends of mine, all five of them. And they come to me, they tell me their plan. And me, being the, just the great guy that I am, like, no, you don't want to rob a bank. That's a bad idea, right? And so I tell them, and I'm begging with them, guys, don't do this. This is not going to go well. The, the risk is not worth the reward. You know, I'm trying to rationalize with them, pleading with them, don't do it. I beg them. 
And finally, it gets kind of confrontational, right? And they said, no, we're doing this. We don't care what you say. And they kind of just shoved me out of the way. Five of them, there's one of me, right? And there's nothing I really can do. And so they walk out. They head out. They're going out to rob the bank. Well, the last guy in the line is the weakest and the smallest of my friends. I'm like, well, I can't take all of y'all, but I can take you down. So I go and take him, and I tackle him from behind, and I wrestle him to the ground. Well, the other four, they run out. They're gone, right? They get in their car, and they're gone. Well, I held back this weak guy because he's the only guy that I could handle, and I've got him pinned down. It's like, you ain't going to rob no bank today, right? All right, so the other four go out to rob the bank, and they go out. They proceed. They rob the bank, and in the process, they, they kill a security guard, and they kill two civilians. Well, guess what happens? They're captured, they're convicted, and they're sentenced to life in prison. But the one man who was not involved in the robbery, the guy that I tackled, he gets to go free. Now here's the question. Whose fault was it that those four other friends of mine were arrested and sentenced? Can they blame me for that? And here, this other man who was walking around free, you think he can walk around and say, well, I have, I have a good heart, I have a good conscience, and I just decided because of the great man that I am that I did not want to follow through with robbing the bank. Can he say that? And that's why I'm not in jail. Can he say that? The only reason he's not in jail is because I tackled him. I held him down. That's the only reason he's not in jail. So when you put this in light of what we've been talking about today, those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. And those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus. See, you got to understand that salvation is all grace from the very beginning to the very end. So when people end up in hell, they can't say, well, Jesus, you, you put me here. No, Jesus said, I, I didn't do it. Think about those four. The, I, I, I pleaded with those five friends. They all walked out on me. There was only one I could take down. And I took him down. And so is that guy now thankful to himself that he was saved from prison? No. Are you serious? He only has me to think. And if you think about this in terms of the big picture, that's just an illustration. And I, and I think it makes sense in my mind that, that when we go to heaven, there is no one to praise but Christ. And when people go to hell, there's no one to blame but themselves. The band's going to come and they're going to close out the service. And I've covered a lot of ground this morning. And I covered a lot of verses, a lot more than I normally do. But, but my hope and my prayer is that ultimately you see the big three things we talked about. God's powerful promises, his supreme sovereignty. And last but certainly not least, what we've been singing about this morning is God's magnificent mercy. And for you guys that have you've had your soul saved and you've been saved eternally from, from hell and from damnation of hell, and you're going to heaven, that's because God wrestled you to the ground he took you to the ground at some point be thankful he did that's mercy don't walk around pumping your chest saying look at me look what I've done I chose the right thing I chose not to rob the bank that's me that's my good conscience be thankful that God wrestled you to the ground out of his mercy Lord I I thank you for your word and I feel like there's no way in a million years I could ever make a passage like this clear and and without Um, confusion and without questions so I'm sure that I've probably created more questions and answers and I've probably created more confusion than than clarity 
But I pray that your spirit would go ahead of me and would go ahead of each person as they are studying the scriptures for themselves, as they're diving into it themselves, they're, they're studying, they're using resources. Lord, I pray above all they would not rely on my word as truth. That's a terrible idea just in general. But, Lord, that they would rely on your word as truth, that they would study it and know it for themselves. And if they come back with a completely different conclusion than I have, that I have made this morning, then, then Lord, let us have a, a, a very respectful and and loving and kind conversation about that because Lord there are Christians who I love and who I respect that are in churches this morning that are preaching only one side of this equation and Lord I know they're fully in love with you and they're fully over to you and I don't I really don't care what they classify themselves as Calvinist, Arminian, non-Cal, I don't, I, don't, I don't care because I know they're in you. They're in Christ. They're in you. And, and Lord, I pray that that's the way we would approach this as, a, as an open-handed issue, not something that we get so caught up in that it destroys relationships, it destroys churches. But Lord, that we would understand that, that both can exist and both do exist in Scripture in only a way that makes sense to you. Because I've already mentioned three or four things, Lord, this morning that I, I can't make sense of. it. Even as I've read and studied and I've read and studied more, I still can't make sense of it. But you do. And Lord, I rest in your sovereignty. And I pray that that's where each of us would find ourselves. Not relying on a man's word, especially me, but relying on your word. That we would rest in your sovereignty. We would rest in your mercy. We would rest in your promises. And when we reach that point, that, Lord, that's a sweet, sweet place to be. Because then it's not about my understanding. It's not about my execution of obedience. It's not about me at all. It's about your righteousness. And it's about your faithfulness. Not my lack of. I pray you bring us all to that place. Whether it's this week this month or maybe it's a lifetime that you take to get us there bring us there Lord bring us there we ask these things in your name